welcome to episode 25 of the Going for Broke Outdoors podcast, a podcast by an outdoorsman for other outdoorsmen. I'm your host, Jeremy Gillespie. Today's podcast guest is Joe Gillespie. Joe happens to be my cousin and an aspiring elk hunter. By some miracle, Joe managed to draw a difficult-to-obtain elk permit for a limited-entry draw area in Montana with only a few points. In this episode, Joe and I discuss logistics for this fall, gear selection, an overview of purchasing and learning to use elk calls, physical fitness plans, and contingency and rescue plans in case of an emergency or severe injury. This podcast isn't necessarily elk-specific, a lot of great tips if you're looking to plan your first DIY hunt. Quick note, Joe and I talk about gear in this episode, but if you'd like to see a full list of the gear I use every fall, I've got that complete list on my blog at www.goingforbrokeoutdoors.com slash blog. Also, want to say thanks again to everyone out there who's subscribed to my YouTube channel or my podcast on your favorite podcast app. Really appreciate all the support. If you haven't already subscribed or shared this podcast with a friend, it'd mean a lot to me if you did. Today's podcast is brought to you by Stealth Outdoors at www.stealthoutdoors.com. Visit the Stealth Outdoor store to outfit your mobile hunting setup with some silencing gear. If your gear isn't already sporting stealth strips, what are you waiting for? Thousands of satisfied hunters have silenced their gear using the products from Stealth Outdoors. Designed with a mobile hunter in mind, Stealth Outdoors manufactures climbing stick wraps, cam buckle covers, platform cable wraps, and stealth strip rolls for all of your miscellaneous silencing needs. Don't let unwanted noise get you busted this season. Visit www.stealthoutdoors.com to silence your gear and place an order today. And now, on to the podcast. All right, today on the podcast, I have my cousin, Joe Gillespie. So Joe was lucky enough to draw a limited entry elk permit in Montana this year. Joe's a non-resident, so he's going to be coming to Montana for his first hunt and also to Montana for the first time, I believe. And I think this is Joe's first elk hunt where he has a tag. Joe, you hunted in Utah with some buddies, right? But you were you were just there for fun, or did you have a cow tag there? Oh, that's correct. I wasn't actually a tag holder. I was just along for the ride. All right. So, Joe, obviously you're not on the forums that I'm on a lot, so people probably have no idea who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, not only is my first elk hunt, it's my first podcast as well. So a lot of firsts with this experience. I'm active duty Navy uh, for the last 21 years. Joined at 17 right out of high school. Married my high school sweetheart. We have two children. My son's 19. My daughter's 17. We've been stationed all over, mostly in Florida. But we did do two Oconus tours, one in at City, Japan. And then most recently in Hawaii. Uh, while we were in Hawaii, we had the opportunity to do some pretty awesome hunts with the mouflon sheep, Spanish mountain goats, and then a really successful axis deer hunt on the island of Lanai. So I've got a little bit of hunting experience, but nothing out west, nothing in Montana. Yeah, super excited that I drew the tag. I'm looking forward to the hunt and hoping I can learn a bunch. Yeah, let's talk about the tag real quick. You started talking to me maybe, I don't know, two years ago about coming out for a hunt in Montana and then COVID hit. So we were going to just do a deer hunt initially that kind of got axed. And then you decided that you'd really like to elk hunt and maybe even try with the bow. So you'd bought, I think you had one or maybe two preference points going into this year. Do you remember? I had one. One. Okay. And then, so in Montana, I want to touch on this real quick for people that don't know. A preference point, those are good to help you draw your actual tag, like your carcass tag. But then Montana's got a bunch of permit areas or limited entry areas where you can't hunt those on the regular general elk tag you've got to put in for a drawing for that permit area so 
Joe only had one bonus point, and bonus points help you draw permit areas. But we put them in for kind of a hard-to-draw area for non-residents. And actually, I think when I checked the stats, they only allocate like 10% of the tags to non-residents. So that meant there was only 30 non-resident tags for this area. And uh, with only one bonus point, I didn't think Joe's odds were too high. But he ended up drawing a tag, so that was awesome. So this year, Joe, he's going to come out. And basically what we're going to talk about today is some of our preparations, get some of the logistics stuff down. And Joe's going to ask questions, being a new elk hunter of me, and not that I'm a super experienced veteran, but I've got a few years under my belt now. And we're going to try to plan out what he needs for gear, when he's going to come out, any questions he might have uh, specific to gear, tactics, calls, all that kind of stuff. And we'll cover that today and start getting our uh, trip planned. One other thing I wanted to cover on the tags real quick, and Joe's for people that don't know, if, if anybody is interested in applying for Montana, the application period for big game, which is deer and elk, is every year March 1st to April 1st. If people are interested in applying for next year, you can buy preference points from June 1st, and I believe they just changed it this year. It goes longer now. It used to end in September, like you could buy them through the end of September, but now I think it's the end of October, maybe even November. So if you're looking at coming to Montana next year, buy a preference point this summer, and that'll help your odds. So first things first, Joe, we need to pick some dates. So we talked about this a little bit, but I want to cover a few things here too that I think is important. A lot of people plan their elk hunts around the fall equinox, and that this year that's September 22nd. So the common wisdom, I think, is to, to do five days on the either side of that. So you'd be coming out like September 17th to the 29th I guess another thing that people like to look at to plan their elk hunts is the moon full moon generally is considered bad and a dark moon is considered good this year it lines up really good last year was terrible it was like a full moon during the peak of the rut but this year the dark moon is September 25th so that's right around the same time as the rut should have awesome rut action this year as long as it's not 90 degrees so I'm actually going to request uh september 17th through october 2nd off and i'm going to try to negotiate down from there i have a hard time getting time off in september for my job so let's look at the calendar real quick you got a calendar you can look at i do all right should we try to get two weeks off i mean this is probably like a once in a lifetime tag for you so if you can i think we should shoot for two so i'm going to negotiate for the two no promises obviously being active duty anything can change but i've basically allocated the second half of September to this elk hunt. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. So what I would like you to do, and I'm going to do the same, is ask for the 17th of September to the 2nd of October off. And then if we can't get that and you got to go down to one week, I think we should go the, the second week. We'll go 24th through the 2nd, which would be nine days. It'd be two weekends in one week. Perfect. That'll be the plan there. I like that later week for a couple of reasons. One, my experience in Montana has been, it's a little bit better. I would say if, if we could pick, like said, exact days, that five days on each side of the equinox would be good, but that's kind of weird days to get off. You, you only get one weekend there. So you're taking more, you know what I mean? More weekdays, more work days off. So going weekend to weekend seems to work good. Right. And a lot of times people take their non-residents and even residents, they take their vacation earlier. So it seems like the pressure really starts to die off that last week in September. So we'll have a, a better chance of not running into people then. Perfect. 
Okay, so let's talk about gear. What kind of questions do you have on gear? And do you think there's anything that you need to buy special for this hunt? And if so, let's talk about that. Yeah, so one of my goals was to come out there and show that you didn't need a crazy amount of gear and you didn't need to spend a ridiculous amount of money on gear to go out and do an elk hunt. Basically, knowledge and grinding would get you there. So one of the big ones is boots. Uh, you hear this all the time. Boots need to be broken in. You need to have these great boots. My current hunting boots, believe it or not, are Rocky S2Vs, and for multiple reasons. One, I'm authorized to wear them in uniform, so they're always broken in really well. And secondly, I have a custom set of inserts that were made for them, so they're extremely comfortable. So I wear those to hunt. I wore them in Hawaii on the Axis deer hunt, Mufalon sheep hunt, and, and the Spanish mountain goat hunt we did. So we're climbing mountains about 2,500 feet in a mile and a half, so it's extremely steep terrain, a lot of lava rock, red clay, and they perform great. So that's the pros. The cons of those boots are they're not waterproof and they're not exactly a hunting boot. So I guess I'm at a crossroads there. Do I continue to utilize something that worked well for me or do I go another route and purchase something that maybe won't be as comfortable, but it's ideal for this hunting situation? Yeah, I would say stick with what works. So the first year that I hunted elk, I kind of had a similar thing. I have really wide feet, so I have a hard time finding boots that fit me comfortably. And the pair of boots that I could find that worked then was Danner Pronghorns. And Pronghorns is kind of more like a flatland boot. It's not super stiff. It doesn't have like a really aggressive sole, but it was comfortable. And they didn't take a long time to break in. It was like maybe only 10 or 15 miles. So... I would say stick with what works for sure. Nothing worse than having sore, blistered feet. Like, that'll shut any hunt down real quick. And we're going to be hiking a ton. The waterproof thing, I don't think that's a huge deal out here because if it's been anything like the last couple of years, it'll rain like three times the whole year. So we haven't been getting much rain at all. And the area that we're going to be hunting without giving too much away is not typical western Montana mountain terrain where we might get rain due to the, the mountains. So this area is generally pretty dry. I would stick with what works or maybe get a new pair of those if those ones are older and you can reuse your inserts, but I don't think you need anything crazy. Okay. Yeah. So they're very comfortable. Like I said, and they've performed well for me when I hunted in Hawaii. So I appreciate it. Thanks for answering that question. Yeah. And then one of the other things that we've talked about, but it's worth mentioning here and I already know what you have, but talk about your uh, backpack. I think having a good pack is super important on elk hunt. Yep. So I bought the Mystery Ranch Bear Tooth 80 for the hunts in Hawaii, and I can't say enough great things about it. I love that pack. We packed Axis deer out from the bottom of the mountain range that we were on all the way to the top because that's where our vehicle was located to leave that area. The load shelf that's on the Mystery Ranch Bear Tooth 80, I love it. Yeah, can't say enough great things about that pack. So that's the one I plan to bring. Uh, I ordered it to size. I believe I'm a medium. And I watched the YouTube videos to size it. And it's just a great pack. It's, it was crazy going from uh, a non-hunting pack to one that's actually designed for hunting. Uh, yeah, it's an amazing pack. So that's the one I plan on using. Yeah, that's awesome. I've got a mystery ranch. Mine's a little older. I might actually upgrade my pack this year. I've got a Marshall and it is, it carries loads. Well, you mentioned the meat shelf for people that don't know the meat shelf is basically 
the bag detaches from the frame, but then at the bottom it stays connected by a piece of fabric, and then you can load your meat on your frame, and that fabric keeps it from slipping down when you reconnect the bag, so it helps hold it pretty secure. But the Marshall that I've got, it's just one big interior compartment. The Beartooth, I know I've been looking at those, Joe. That's got more internal organization, and the lid, or I guess the bag zipper, is a different zipper shape, and there's some internal organizing pockets. So that looks like probably a better fit for what I'm looking for because if you've got smaller pieces of gear, stuff you're trying to access semi-regularly in my bag, you got to end up digging through it versus yours. It looks like you can just open the lid, and a lot of that stuff's in that first zippered pocket. It looks pretty handy. Yes, very handy. Yeah, another thing you mentioned there was watching YouTube videos. I think that's real important to, one, you said size your pack. You want to make sure that you get on whatever backpack site you're using, whether it's Mystery Ranch or, you know, Kafaru, Exo Mountain, whatever. There's there's lots of good packs out there. But make sure you understand how their pack works and how they're sized. So you want to get on there and, like, measure your torso, measure your waist, make sure you get a pack that's fitted. And then even when you get it, like, I know Mystery Ranch, you can adjust the yoke up and down. And that's probably what you were talking about, right, when you were talking about sizing yours? Yes. Yeah, that's actually really important because you can have a pack that's sized right for you, but if the yoke is out of position, it can sit kind of weird. So getting that sized and adjusted properly for your body is super important, and it makes carrying the loads as easy as it can be. Also, you talked about their uh, meat shelf, which is cool. It's not necessarily intuitive how that bag comes apart, so watching those videos, doing it a few times before you come out for your hunt so you know how to get the bag off the frame, get the meat on there, get it loaded back up. Pretty helpful stuff to know in advance. So that's one thing that I'd stress is before you come out, which sounds like you're already up to speed, but anybody that's listening, make sure you know your equipment before you get out in the field. And then, Joe, one of the things that I think is super important, especially on any Western hunt, is binoculars. And I'll start with this. You don't need, uh, you know, $3,000 Swarovski binoculars, but you need something halfway decent. So what are you planning to run this fall? So I plan on upgrading that piece of gear. While I was in Hawaii, I was using the lowest end vortex optics they have. I believe they're the Crossfire. Okay. That they worked. Um, but my hunting buddy I had over there had a nice set of loopholes. I'm not sure what the model was, but you could tell the difference between a $1,500 piece of glass and I think mine were $200. So I plan on upgrading the binos for sure. But currently that's what I have and that they worked. Um, but they didn't work well yeah so that's a good segue into what we're going to talk about next is i've got a pretty decent set of binos i got the vortex razors but i've also got a spotting scope and obviously we both don't need a spotting scope so that's one of the items that we can share and i think anytime we're talking about backpack elk hunts you and i or, or anybody that's going with a friend or a partner or whatever you should really look at sharing some gear because you can avoid redundancy and keep the load lighter for everybody so one of the things that we can share is the spotting scope you know one guy can carry a spotting scope the other guy can carry the tripod kind of split the weight up that way and i've got a tent so obviously it sounds like you're gonna fly right you're not gonna drive here yeah i'm, I'm definitely gonna fly all right so we're trying to keep your luggage to a minimum here too so i've got a tent but one of the ways that I've done that in the past, and I've got a backpacking specific tent. It's pretty light. It's got aluminum poles and everything, and it's not a real giant tent. It's like they claim it's three person, but it's more like two and a little bit of gear. So 
I like to split up the tent poles in the tent canvas. So, you know, one of us will carry the tent, the other one will carry the poles. And then I think something that maybe it gets overlooked too is knives. I feel like every time I go out, everybody I know has got two or three knives in their bag. To me, that's kind of redundant. So I carry three knives, one for gutting, one for skinning, and then like a fillet knife for once I've got the, the animal skinned and gutted, I like to take the meat off the animal or take the quarters off of that then i always carry like one of those cheap small plastic knife sharpeners you know where you pull the blade through on the two ceramics just to touch up a knife because that helps a lot too and those don't weigh anything so we can uh we can split up the knives too yeah that's perfect this will be my fourth or fifth year elk hunting i'm trying to think now yeah this will be my fifth year and i've got zero elk so that should inspire a lot of confidence in you (laughs) (laughs) But last year, I should have got one. Last year, I did shoot an elk, put a bad hit on it. Unfortunately, couldn't recover it. And then I missed another one. So I'm getting a little warmer here. But the the reason I was getting at, I've only, or I don't have any elk, is I think a lot of guys, both guys are carrying game bags too. And again, this is my limited experience, and I'm not the world's greatest elk hunter. You very rarely get two elk in the same day. So we'll just take one package of game bags, and you know that'll cover a whole elk. So those things are actually surprisingly heavy, generally, even though they're just kind of dry cloth or whatever. So we can split those up, too. Yeah, I think that's smart. The gear splitting idea. Anything that you could think of that that would be an item that we could share that wouldn't be redundant? I was curious about the stove, the camp stove or mountain stove. Uh, are we both required to bring one of those? No, that's another great point. So I've got a jet boil. Have you ever used one of those or something similar? Yes, I, I actually have a jet boil as well. Okay, so yeah, we can, you could probably bring the stove, but you couldn't bring the gas, but I've got one anyways, so you don't need one. I always like to bring like a lighter or something for redundant fire, but no, we don't both need a stove. Mine, Mine's new and been working fine, so I'll put that on the list too for things that we can share. Yeah. I want to move into calls because I know you had some questions about this when you found out you drew the tag elk hunt. So what do you know about elk calling? What do you want to know? What do you think you need? And let's sort out what you actually need. Well, first of all, I know absolutely nothing about elk calling. Uh, I currently do not have an elk call. My goal was to get whatever is the simplest to use and that I can be the most effective using between now and September. So yeah, I guess that's the direction I'm leaning with elk calls. Yeah, let me ask you this. I've gotten okay at bugling, enough where I've bugled in a few bulls to know that even if I don't sound perfect or I'm not going to win any calling championships, I'm at least effective enough to call stuff in. So do you want to, as part of your experience, and I think this matters too if if people are coming with someone that already kind of knows what they're doing, do you want to bugle like yourself? I, if it's required, I would like to do it. But again, I don't want to put us in a position where my bugling so terrible that it actually hurts us instead of helps us yeah i hear you so the first two years well the first year i came in 2017 as a non-resident i came with buddies that that are native montanans so i didn't call at all they did all the calling i didn't know what i was doing i bought an elk call like a easy to use mouth one not a bugle just a cow call and it sounded pretty bad to begin with and it sounded even worse with me using it and then the first year out here, my buddy Tim, who's Tim was on the podcast, I think episode 11, he got better at calling than I did, quite a bit better, quite a bit faster. 
So when we would hunt together, he would do all the bugling because my bugle for the first year was just horrific. So I think I was, have you ever used a turkey call mouth read or no? Yes, I've used turkey calls in the past. Okay, so I'd never even used a turkey call. So you at least have the concept of blowing air over the mouth diaphragm. I did not. So what I would recommend to you and to anybody that's listening to that, thinking about getting an elk call is they're like anywhere from 7 to $10 a mouth read. I would read a few reviews online and then I would buy three or four different ones and try them out. And then do you know who Corey Jacobson is by chance? He's a big like a DIY elk hunter. He, he runs this YouTube channel or maybe it's a website or both called elk 101. Yeah, have you ever heard of him? Oh, I have heard of the elk 101. I didn't know him by name, but I've heard of the elk 101. Yeah. So here's what I would do, Joe. And this helped me a lot. Get a couple different reads first, because to this day, I've still got two that I can't make sound good at all. So find one that fits your mouth decent and that you can actually make an elk noise after practicing, practicing a little bit with it. And then watch Corey's got an instructional video on how to bugle. And it talks about where to position the call, how much air to blow over it, how to apply your tongue pressure to make the higher sounding uh, parts of a locator bugle, how to add realism to it. And basically just take it one step at a time, follow it. And that really helped me a lot. I did that between the first year I hunted out here with Tim and the second year and my, my bugles got way better. Still not great, but, but they could probably pass for an elk after that. So I don't know, like I said, it's up to you and the experience. I can obviously do all the bugling, but it is kind of fun just to do it. So if you want to bugle, get one of those as soon as you can, like this week and start watching that elk 101, how to bugle video and just start practicing with that. And then I think any bugle tube will work. I, here's what I ended up with. I use Phelps brand. They have a call called the Maverick. That's the mouth read. And there's another pretty famous elk hunter, uh, Dirk Durham. He's like a super good caller. I didn't buy Maverick because it was Dirk Durham's call. I just bought a handful of calls and that's the one that happened to work for me. So you don't need to buy somebody's signature call or whatever. Just buy a handful of them because some of them have thicker latex. Some of them are stretched tighter. They're just a little different. Some of them have metal domes on them. Some of them don't find one that works for you. And then once you find one that, you know, after, let's say after three weeks of practice, you can make a better bugle with one pretty clearly than the other ones just quit using the other ones and focus on the one you can use well okay and then that phelps maverick would be the diaphragm that actually goes in your mouth yep and then i just bought their bugle tube but like a lot of places make bugle tubes you get whatever you want but if you're gonna try a phelps call you might as well just buy one of those or all that stuff's overpriced it's just a cone of plastic obviously but i don't know i think those are like 39 bucks these days okay and both both items are required yeah Okay. And then for cow calls, so generally you do a lot more cow calling than you do straight bugling. At least I do. And let me say, you do a lot more comparative to bugles. I don't call a lot, period, just because I, I mean, it can work, but I think the animals out here get pressured and I like to spot them first to hear them. If I can if hear them bugling, get close and then call when I get closer or if they're not going to come in. So we won't be... We won't be ripping off calls all day nonstop. That's, I don't know. I found that to not be super effective. So I guess that's that. But the cow call, so with that Maverick diaphragm, you can make a cow call with it without the bugle tube too. It 
it doesn't maybe sound as good as a dedicated cow call, but if you're getting in close, you can make cow sounds with that. So you probably want to practice that too. And then a separate call, uh, again, I didn't buy Phelps for any reason other than it worked and they had them in stock at my local sporting goods store, but I bought a Phelps. It's called the easy estrus and anybody that's listening, I'll put links to this stuff in the podcast description, but easy estrus is a single read call. And if you Google that, you'll see what I'm talking about, but it's just got one read. Those are kind of weird to use at first, but they're super easy to learn. So I'd highly recommend getting a single read and Joe, I would maybe get a different one than what I've got. That way they'll sound slightly different. So maybe don't get that exact one, get a different Phelps or get a different brand that's got good reviews, uh, single read cow call. And okay. you know, that way we can sound like more than one cow, which is good. And that's something that I do a little bit of too, is I'll use my single read cow, uh, cow call, and then I'll switch to the diaphragm call. Cause that's got a different sound in cow call. You know, you want to sound like more than one cow generally. Okay. So any other questions on that? Uh, no, I just, I guess I'm trying to keep it simple. We have five months, but five months isn't a whole lot of time for a guy that's never elk hunted before to kind of capture all this stuff and make sure he comes out with the basics. Again, I want to be helpful. I don't want to hurt the team. So yeah, I think that's all I got. On. That's why I'd recommend as soon as possible, get some calls ordered. If you, if you're going to do that, get the single read cow call for sure. And it is fun just to practice. Your your wife won't think so or your kids won't think so. But it is fun to blow on the bugle and start sounding like an elk. So the, I guess that's my best tip is get a few different reads, try them out. Uh, before you try them out, watch that video from Elk 101, like the how to bugle video. And then just, it's muscle memory, you know, just practice. And you're going to sound, maybe you'll be a lot better than I will. But I sounded ridiculous for, for weeks, it felt like, with the bugle before I got it but a lot of it again is just muscle memory and knowing how much air to push over the diaphragm and just practice how long a commute do you have to work these days yeah I was actually just gonna bring that up uh, I liked your idea of practicing during the commute because commutes can be terrible sitting in traffic but so I feel like I'm getting better at elk calling and might make it a little more bearable <laughs> yeah that's what I used to do so when I was living in Michigan and even out here I had over a half hour commute so I would take it and do you know 30 40 bugles each way in the morning and the evening and it's kind of funny because it's ridiculous in the car <laughs> and if you got the bugle tube you, you look kind of crazy but you don't need let me say that too you don't need the bugle tube to practice your bugles you can do just the mouth read part in the vehicle and get that muscle memory and the airflow putting your mouth up to the bugle tube does make it a little different but not so much so that you know it'll affect it so you, you can practice without the tube on your commute i guess is what i'm saying yeah, I'll probably just use the tube while I'm commuting anyways. Let everybody know I'm a mountain hunter. There you, know know you go. <laughs> <laughs> so another thing I wanted to talk about, we talked about maybe gear you, you have, gear you might want to buy. I'm a huge fan of these Ultimate Predator decoys. They are basically, it's a canvas that's stretched over this flexible wire loop. So the wire loop's kind of like an oval then it's got an elk face or an antelope face, deer. They make all sorts of one. And then in the middle of the decoy, there's a, a hole cut out, and it's basically a shooting port. You mount these things to your bow, and then through the hole, you can see your sight, and then your arrow goes through. And on mine, the bottom of the hole is, like, tight to my bow stabilizer, and then the top is just above my bow sight. And then there's a, there's a bunch of different ways to connect them. They sell some 
gadgets or you can just use you ever use those like night eyes gear ties you know what i'm talking about i'm not familiar with them no okay basically it's like an industrial bread tie it's a flexible wire with a rubber dipped coating so i know guys that use those night eyes to connect them to their bow and that's easy to take them on and off you know as opposed to like zip zip ties or something anyways i've got one of those ultimate predator decoys it's a elk butt so it just looks like a picture of an elk butt you know brown with some white in the center if you want to buy one you don't have to but if you want to get one get the cow head because what we've been doing my buddy tim that i held on with he's got the cow head and last year i got the butt what we've been doing is putting the elk butt on the shooter's bow and then we put the cow head on the collar's bow so the the butt looks like it's leaving any incoming bull and then the cow in the back who would be the collar looks like it's looking at the bull and last year i went hunting once or twice uh, with without tim with just the elk butt and saw bulls and was able to call bulls in from you know over 100 yards away into shooting range with that so those things if you look at them online they look super dumb but and i think they're overpriced for what you get but it's the only product that i know of that easily attaches to your bow and is that effective so highly recommend if anybody's listening during the rut those things are killer and you might want to pick one of those up i think they're like 70 or 80 bucks which again for what they are kind of ridiculous but if that's the difference between calling a bull in and not i don't know probably 80 bucks well spent perfect yeah uh, they'll get you laughed out of the office when you're looking them up online <laughs> yeah yeah so you were showing some guys the other day right what happened with that Oh, I was looking them up online after we had talked about it on the phone. And uh, my coworker came over and looked over my shoulder. And, you know, I had already briefed him on the fact that we were going elk hunting at the end of September. And, uh, yeah, basically I was laughed out of the office. They couldn't believe that I thought that that was going to work. Uh, they basically looked at it as like a gimmick. And uh, I tried to explain it, and, you know, it was an epic fail. So. Well, hopefully you can shoot a, a bull this fall and then people will be right. eating their words. So quick yeah. quick story on this. Before my quick story, I want to take a break to mention huntingbeastgear.com. Co-founded by the big buck serial killer himself, Dan Infault, Hunting Beast Gear features state-of-the-art manufacturing techniques, the highest quality materials, and innovative designs that have been engineered, field-tested, and refined to perfection by a group of the best mobile hunters on the planet www.huntingbeastgear.com delivers cutting-edge products, including beast gear, climbing sticks with weight reduction holes designed to deliver incredible durability in a lightweight stick. Beast gear climbing sticks also feature non-staggered inline stacking and double steps, all in a 2.2-pound package, including the fastening strap. Huntingbeastgear.com has also released the game-changing beast gear hang-on tree stand, designed to be the ultimate hang-on tree stand solution. With four years of prototyping, testing, and refinement, the Beast Gear stand features a 16-inch wide by 29-inch long platform. The stand comes in at an incredible 6.8 pounds, and it does all that without compromising strength or durability. The Beast Gear stand is finished with a long-lasting anodized coating and features grade 8 hardware, high-quality Delrin washers, beast buttons, and adjustment knobs. For more details and to place your order, head on over to www.huntingbeastgear.com today. Now, back to the podcast. Last year the bull that i shot and and unfortunately didn't hit great i saw that bull coming up a draw from about 400 yards away and this area is kind of like interspersed with trees kind of open area and it was going to go by about 150 yards away so when it was about you know perpendicular to my position i had the decoy up i was using that elk butt and i cow called i stopped it looked and i was pretty sure it saw me put its head down, kept going. 
It walked five more yards. That cow called twice more or louder. It picked its head up, looked, started walking directly at me. So from 150 yards out, this bull walked all the way into 40 yards. I drew back at 60. It walked 20 more yards, and then it hung up. So obviously, I would have not had a shot at it. I don't think I could have got anywhere close to it if I was trying to close that distance because the terrain was pretty open. So I don't think I would have been able to sneak in and the cow calls alone wouldn't have brought it in. I, I know that because I've cow called that a lot of bulls without a decoy and they, they'll, they'll hang up a lot. Anybody that elk hunts will tell you, especially in the more open terrain where they can see they'll hang up a lot. So that made me a believer. And then on another hunt later last year, uh, Shauna was with me. We bugled in an area that we'd seen a bull the week before didn't get a response we waited five or ten minutes it was getting close to dark we probably had like 20 minutes of shooting light left so we waited a few minutes started walking and i look up and 120 yards away there's a really nice six by six bull staring at us okay i've got the butt mounted decoy on my bow pretty much all the time now during elk season so this bull sees us and it just looks at us we freeze obviously i wait two minutes to see if it's gonna run off or do whatever it's gonna do and then i slowly this is a ridiculous story. I can't believe this worked. So this is another reason why I believe in these things. Slowly lift this elk butt decoy up. The elk puts its head down, starts feeding again. We were, whatever I said, 120, 150 yards away. And we snuck into 70 yards of, of this bull. And, and then I almost got a shot off at that one too. So kind of ridiculous. You would never think this stuff would work. Like I said, looking at them online, they look pretty pretty ridiculous. But that's two cases just last year where that made a difference in me you know, getting within shot range or not. Yeah, I'm a believer for sure. Well, hopefully you will be. We'll see. So that's like some of the preliminary stuff I wanted to talk about, Joe, that I knew for sure. Hit me with any questions you've got, like logistics questions, gear questions, anything you got. Yeah, so everything I've read about or watched YouTube videos of, it seems like there's two reoccurring themes, uh, physical fitness and shooting ability in the mountains. Both things I'm working on, obviously, I live in Florida, so shooting in the mountains, I'm not going to get good at that before I get there. But what are some tips you can give me as far as the training and shooting ability, what I should be practicing while I'm shooting, and just any other tips with, you know, shooting bow and arrow? Okay. First thing I would say on the physical fitness is, we already talked about this, make sure your boots are broken. That's a great time to do it. The first year that I came out, the last six, eight weeks when I was doing cardio, whether that was on walking around my neighborhood, climbing hills in my local park, going to the gym at the time, this was pre-COVID, and treadmill or stair step, whatever. I wore my boots all the time. So make sure your boots are broken. I would recommend minimum, you know, you want to have 30 miles on those, but 75 would be way better. So make sure your boots are broken. Make sure you're doing some sort of, to the extent that you can, hill type cardio work whether that's, I know Florida's pretty flat, so that's going to be tough, but if you've got access on your gym to a Stairmaster, Stairmaster's a great elk hunting or incline treadmill. You don't have to run, just, you know, brisk walk or brisk on the, the Stairmaster because obviously, you know, everybody knows probably you're going to be out most of the day or a lot of times all the day. Some Sometimes if it's hot, we'll just do morning and evening hunts, but you need to have the stamina to go all day for several days. And that's another thing that I would advise. It's, it's pretty easy when you're doing cardio to do like a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or a Monday, Thursday, Sunday, whatever. Do, especially as it gets closer, 
do some back-to-back really tough days where you're doing if you've got time everyone's busy right with family and stuff but if you've got time the last couple of weeks do a couple two hour three hour days back to back to back because that's where it starts to get tough pretty much everybody i've elk hunted with um th- this applies to me too i'm not super physical specimen by any means the first day is usually pretty easy and even if you're not in great shape you can get through it just mentally grinding it's the second third fourth day when man you're getting tired and you haven't been sleeping a ton because you're getting up early and you're staying up late that's when it gets tough so do do some back to back to back cardio that'd be my best advice there anything leg oriented too i don't know if you do any kettlebell work or if you got a squat rack at home or gym or even dumbbells you know lunges squats that kind of stuff just focus on your legs your your arms or whatever for elk hunting you obviously got to be able to draw your bow but i'm sure you can do that so i'd really focus on cardio and legs what about uh hiking with your pack is that something you recommend that's good cardio if you've already used your pack in a hunting environment which you have obviously on on lanai and doing your hunts in hawaii i don't think that's as important i think this is just me but a lot of the benefit to that is getting your gear set up and make sure your pack will carry a a load well and comfortably so if you're already there I, i don't think it's a bad idea to do that stuff but i don't also think it's necessary if you're in good shape already you know packing the meat that's just whatever our our normal pack i would say if we split the gear up we're going to be like 30 to 40 pounds so if you do want to do some some rucks or whatever with a weighted pack probably loaded up 35 pounds would be a good number okay perfect and then as far as shooting your bow goes that's just get as good as you can get and i would say because we're hunting a unit that's got more open terrain versus like dense pine forest you're going to want to be able to shoot as far as you can accurately I would say the minimum I would shoot for to feel comfortable with would be like 50 yards. If you can get out to 60, even better. I try not to take shots over 60. So I don't know what your current comfortable range is, but aim for 50 and and 60 would be great if you can do that. And as far as like shooting your bow, if you do order that decoy and you can, you know, you could order that later June, July, whatever, but you'd probably want to put that on your bow, shoot with that on some, I would shoot kneeling if you have anywhere and that maybe you'll be tough where you can shoot from an elevated position to simulate shooting downhill even if you could get on your roof or whatever or if your local archery club's got a tree stand or something or a platform you can shoot off if you're not comfortable shooting up or downhill and there's tons of stuff online about this but you know you want to make sure you're bending at the waist so you're not changing your anchor point and also whatever range finder you're going to use i guess i didn't even ask you you've got a range finder i actually do not have a range finder so that's another piece of gear i need to get okay definitely gonna want to have a range finder and the reason i'm bringing that up is well for a lot of reasons but one of the things is you want to make sure that you you have your bow sighted in to your range finder not that these days they're all real accurate and they should be close but you want to you want to be confident in your gear right so when you go to the range if it says it's 20 yards and your rangefinder says it's 21 you know make sure your 20 yard pin is sighted into your rangefinder and not the range you know however they identified 20 yards if that makes sense yeah that makes sense in a rangefinder you don't need anything crazy for bow hunting the only reason i would say to spend a little more money is if you're going to use your rangefinder to shoot rifles too or you plan on doing you know western hunting where you might be shooting three four or five hundred yards and i might get a little better one but 
I mean, obviously for a bow, anything that'll do a hundred yards, that that's just fine. So you don't need to spend a million dollars on those. Just get something that's well reviewed and fits your budget. Okay. And then the other thing that I would recommend as far as the shooting goes, it's pretty windy in Montana pretty often. So anytime you get a chance to shoot in the wind, obviously that you wouldn't want to be sighting your bow in then, but anytime you get a chance to shoot in the wind after you're sighted in and feeling proficient, I would shoot in the wind as often as I could because there's a whole other dynamic, you know, when your bow arms out there and your bow and it's catching wind like a sail blowing all over. It kind of, at least for me, it nerves you up about trying to stay on target. So you're going to want to shoot in the wind just to get comfortable with that also. Okay. And is there anything you can do to simulate that? I, I doubt it, right? Yeah. Short of an outdoor range when it's windy, I, I, nothing's coming to mind where it would be similar. Okay. What about camo patterns? So currently I have the QU Verde 2.0. Uh, that's what we used in Hawaii. It worked well there. And um, is that a camo pattern that's going to work for what we're doing or should I upgrade to something different or a different type of camo pattern? No, that's fine. That's a really good pattern. Anything. So, I mean, I would say the most common patterns or popular patterns out here are that pattern and Sitka's subalpine. I've got some predator camouflage they got a pattern called spring green i really like that one too for elk hunting i like the bigger open patterns and the area we're going to be hunting in montana in general it's like a lot of it's technically desert you know it's a lot drier than than what we're used to coming from michigan so i like a pattern that's got more yellows and tans and greens and than darker colors like you know versus like a mossy oak where when you look at that from a distance that's a pretty dark pattern and kind of blobs out. I like patterns with bigger shapes and with some lighter colors out here. It seems to work better. A lot of times our setups out here will be, we'll try to tuck into to conifers, whether that's juniper trees or ponderosa pines or whatever. We'll be trying to use those for cover. So something that goes well with evergreen trees is a good idea also. But you should be totally good with that pattern. Okay. Um, one of my other questions was about electronics and the power bank and things like that so what's your thoughts or are they required i believe it's called a garmin inreach or satellite phone or onyx maps like what direction are we going with that yeah great question so how i generally navigate is i use onyx do you have an onyx subscription i do not i have another version of onyx but um, i'm my goal or my plan is to get uh, onyx Okay. So for you specifically, if you're not already using it, I guess probably a lot of people already know this, but you can buy just one state. I think it's 29 bucks a year, or you can get all 50 states for 99. If you look around even a little bit for a promo code though, and you haven't had Onyx before, I think you can get the 50 states the first year for like 79 or sometimes even 69 bucks. So definitely look for a promo code on that if you're going to get all 50 states. But a lot of the areas that I hunt in Montana and the areas that we'll be hunting, the majority of the time we will not have cell service. So what you do is you download that area to, as an offline map on Onyx, and then your phone GPS will still work without cell signal. That's a separate part of the electronics. Some people know that, some people don't. These days a lot of people know that. But anyways, you'll download the offline map. That way you'll still be able to see the map on your phone. It won't be all fuzzy or grayed out like it is when you don't have signal. And then I also use a compass and I have a, and we can use this together. This would be a shared item. I've got a Garmin handheld GPS, 
So anytime I'm hunting a new area or somewhere pretty remote, I like navigational redundancy. I've talked about this on the podcast before. So I will use Onyx as my regular pull out of my pocket, check where we're at, check the map type navigation, but I'll run my Garmin also. So I guess talking about power banks, I, I carry a set of batteries per day for my Garmin. And I like lithium batteries, one, because they last longer, two, because they're lighter. Mine takes AA lithium. So let's say we're going to go out on a five-day backpack hunt. I'll carry five sets of batteries. That's always good. Usually the batteries will last a day and a half, maybe two days in that. But again, I like to have some extra just in case. So I'll run the Garmin each day. Uh, I'll have the Onyx. And then do you know or have you run your phone in airplane mode while you're navigating? Uh, Not while navigating, no. Okay, so that's another thing. When you don't have cell service, there's no reason to have the phone you know, trying to search for signal that chews up your battery pretty quick. If you run your phone in airplane mode, that'll extend your phone battery life two, three, four times. So I'll run that, uh, my phone in airplane mode. And then I bring like a, I think it's like a 10,000 milliamp hour battery bank. They're about the size of a wallet. So if you get it on Amazon or whatever, I've got the anchor a N K E R brand. If you're looking for one, they make a whole bunch of different sizes, but the Size I've got is good for about two full charges on my cell phone. So if you're on your phone in airplane mode and you shut it off at night, you can usually get two days on a charge. So with one battery bank, you're good for five or six days. So yeah, battery bank and USB cord, that'd be a good idea. I think that size battery bank's like 30 or 40 bucks. I would probably get one of those for sure if you don't have one already. Okay. And then God forbid in the event there's an emergency, what's the contingency plan? Do you run the Garmin, I believe it's called the Garmin inReach, or do you, I know people rent satellite phones, I think they're like six bucks a day. Uh, can we just talk about that, what the contingency plan would be in the event someone gets hurt, or what direction we're going to go from that? Yeah, so this is one area that I've been probably negligent for a few different reasons, but that would be a great idea. My plan primarily has been, and, and this hasn't even been the plan all the time, I hunt by myself a lot, but my plan has been in areas with no cell service that Hopefully only one person gets hurt, right? And then the other person could walk out. That's not a great plan. I admit that's not a great plan. I've been thinking about getting an inReach for a while, so people that aren't familiar with those, Garmin's got a device that's, I think the inReach mini you can't navigate on, but they've got a combo GPS inReach, and you're able to send text messages via satellite, so you don't need cell service. I've been thinking about upgrading my GPS. My GPS is like 12 years old, so I might get one of those. If not... I think satellite phone, I don't I don't know anyone that's got one or I haven't looked into renting those, but maybe we could do that. But yeah, we should have something because we're going to be in an area with uh, no cell service. It's kind of rough. We could definitely twist an ankle or hopefully not anything that severe, but, you know, break a leg or something. It's not out of the question. Or if we're done, we get severely dehydrated or something. So we're going to talk about that in a second too, the water. But yeah. Uh, do you Do you know anyone that has one that we could borrow by chance? Um, I know someone that's used one previously. I'm not sure if we could borrow it, but uh, yeah, I'll look into that. And then I've already looked into the satellite phones as far as renting them. Like I said, they're super cheap. They mail it to you and it's like six bucks a day or nine bucks a day or something like that. So pretty inexpensive for, uh, you know, to have that as a contingency plan in the pack. Yeah, man. Well, we'll, uh, let's put that as an action item. We'll, we'll circle back to that, but we'll get something set up because like I said, I've been meaning to do that out here, especially it's, it's not like Michigan where a lot of times the places you're hunting, you're, you know, a couple hundred yards from a vehicle or a road or whatever. A couple of the places we're going to be hunting, we're going to be hiking in five, six miles through pretty rough terrain and, and there's no roads. So it'd be like 
if you got hurt bad, it'd probably be helicopter out of there. So we should definitely have something set up. And anybody that's listening, if you're going to be in the same type of environment or, you know, where you're going to be off the grid quite a bit, highly recommend looking into something like that. So good point there. Okay. And then you also mentioned uh, severely dehydrated. Can we talk about water for a minute? Because I'm a guy that drinks a lot of water and I also sweat a lot. So can we talk about what our plan is for filtering water or boil or water source? Do you have a camelback and stuff for your bag? I have a bladder that goes into the Mission Ranch pack, yes. Yeah, okay, good. How, do you know what size that is, two, three, four liters? I think it's two liters. Okay, check that out. I would run a bigger one if your bag will support a bigger one. I think mine's three, which doesn't sound like a lot, but that's 50% more. If you've only got the two, that's fine. So here's what I do. When I know we're going to be hiking in somewhere, always try to identify a water source first on a map. The areas that we'll be hunting, three or four of the areas already know where to get water. And then I've got a Catadyne brand, I think is how you say it, K-A-T-A-D-Y-N, bag filter. And basically, that's just a plastic bag with a filter on one end of the bag. You can scoop it right in the river to fill it up and then add the filter after the bag's filled up so you're not contaminating the filter with river water but basically you fill that up and it's just gravity flow so there's like no mechanical parts to go wrong with it you fill it up hang it in the tree and then it's got a hose that comes out of one end with a little pinch valve on it so you open the valve up and the water that comes out of the hose is filtered you're good to go there that necessitates you know some water source that's deep enough to dip the bag in though or if it's like real sketchy water, a lot of times I'll carry a milk jug with the top cut off with the handle still on it. And then you can use that as a dipper. That's super light to add on your bag and you can dip a gallon at a time. I think that bag holds like maybe it holds two gallons of water. Might only be one. But anyways, so good to go there. I already know that. And then I also carry this thing called a clean canteen. They make insulated and uninsulated ones. This is kind of my, again, I like to have like redundancy or worst case scenario type stuff. The clean canteen, I think that was like 40 bucks and that holds a half gallon of water, but that's a stainless single walled bottle. So you can boil water in it uh, versus the insulated ones where they've got some sort of intermediate stuff and you know, you can't boil or it wouldn't, it'd be a little more suspect. So if you, if you don't have something like that, you don't necessarily need it because I've got one. But anybody that is thinking about going on an elk hunt and doesn't have something similar to that, like a worst case, I'm in trouble, my filter broke, now what do I do for water to get out of here? I'd recommend a stainless single wall bottle to go along with your stove for that reason. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I had a question about, it might seem like a weird or bizarre question, but a lot of myths, hygiene while hunting. Uh, obviously, I don't want to be the stinky kid in camp, but I don't want to do something that's going to get us busted. So what's your thoughts on, you know, no scent, deodorants, toothpaste. I know you talked about uh, bringing items that helps mitigate the chafing. And can we talk about those items? Yeah, for sure. The chafing, that's a good one to start with. So I'm a larger person and I get what I call chub rub, you know, where your inner thighs rub together. And after a while, especially if you don't have like good underwear, they'll, they'll get raw. So first thing I would say is if your underwear you've got, your boxers, whatever you're wearing currently are giving you some, some chafe, Try out a few different brands. I've found a couple that work well for me over the years that are, you know, mitigate that pretty substantially just by the fabric alone. And then, uh, you know, it's funny. This is a weird thing to talk about, but there's this product called Gold Bond Friction Defense. Basically, it looks like a deodorant stick, and it's kind of this 
slimy deodorant, but you can put that on your inner thighs and dude, that makes a world of difference. So if anybody's got chafing problems out there on these long hikes, because inevitably in September, like we're going to have some warm days. Hopefully we don't have real hot days cause that's bad for hunting. But you're going to have some warm days and you're putting in, you know, anywhere I'd say a low mile day would be five and a high mile day would be 15. So five to 15 miles over a couple of days, like you're going to probably deal with that if, if you've got any history of chafing to begin with. So gold bond friction defense, they sell it at Walmart. It's like five bucks. That's a game changer for sure. And then as far as the, the scent goes, I don't think on these backpack hunts, this is me personally. One, I'm not a big scent control person anyways. That's just personal preference. But two, I don't think you can stay scent free on this type of hunt because like you said, you know, in September it's warm out. You're going to sweat your backpack's going to be sweaty, right? Your boots are going to be sweaty. If you wear a hat, your hat's going to be sweaty. You can't keep that stuff scent free after the first day. So I don't worry about that. I play the wind, but I do like to take like field wipes or maybe one washcloth that you can wet down. And then I do wear scent free deodorant and a lot of companies now like dude wipes or whatever, they sell those field wipes, throw a few of those in the pack. That works good. I like items that have double purpose. So a lot of times I'll take like a small pack of wet wipes so you can use those to, to clean yourself off you know a, a hobo shower or whatever and then you can also use them if you got a, a number two problem so those are good good thing to have in the pack i usually take a regular roll of toilet paper but those wet wipes are a little heavier compared to toilet paper but i will take a small pack for you know cleaning up your you know your fa- face and your pits and that type of stuff too what about socks do you have a recommendation for what type, uh, what material they're made of, and then how many pairs you should bring. So on previous hunt, you know, I would take two or three pairs so we could change them out because obviously your feet are going to sweat. And what we did before, I'm not sure if this is the right way to do it or not, so I'm asking your advice. But, you know, we would change socks often and then just tie the, you know, the sweaty pair or the wet pair uh, to the pack or whatever. If you had camp, you'd hang them in the tree. But Previously, I've brought three pairs on a backpack style hunt. And is that sufficient? Do you have better advice, a better direction to go with that? So on the socks, I would say that's kind of like the mouth reads. Try a few different brands. If you got something that is already working for you, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I would keep in mind that out here, are those boots that you have, are those insulated or not? No, they're not. Okay, so I would probably do, if you can find two that work for you, one of the socks that I use is from REI. Do you guys got an REI, you know, the outdoor store by you? Uh, I'm not sure. I'll look into it, but okay. I mean, the usual is Academy Sports is what everybody uses. Yeah, and I'm just bringing it up because the, it's their branded sock. REI is an outdoor store that's all like camping, and I don't know, it's kind of a hippie store, but whatever. They, <laughs> they've got back, <laughs> backpacks and mountain bikes and, you know, probably granola too or whatever. But they've got a brand of socks called Cool Max and – Basically, it's a slightly thicker, like hiking-oriented sock, but it's made of all synthetic materials, so it breathes pretty well and it dries pretty quick. When it's warmer out, I like to wear those, but it's also a good idea to find a merino sock that works because in September, and you know, living in Michigan, Montana is just like Michigan. It could be eighty degrees or it could be thirty degrees. So literally two years ago, the opener, we got eight or 10 inches of snow or no let me take that back it was like 90 degrees on the opener literally the next day we got eight or 10 inches of snow so you got to be prepared for that kind of temperature difference so i would 
I would probably bring, depending on how long we're going to be out, but I'd bring at least four pairs of socks, two of the the ones for warmer weather, and then two of the you know heavier merino sock if it's going to be cold, and maybe even a fifth pair. So one, I hate wet feet and I hate beat up feet, so I'll bring just one pair of dry merino socks that i probably will never wear or i won't wear until the last day and if it's cold and i'm freezing i'll use those to sleep in and that'll be like my reserve pair of socks and then the other ones i pretty much do it you did the good thing about montana being dry and warm and windy is that it dries your socks out real fast so if i wear a pair of socks the first day i'll hang those at camp out on uh you know piece of 550 cord put up a little clothesline or something and then by the end of the day those things would be crispy dry so you know you can rewear them it's not fun to rewear socks i don't think but uh for a couple of days on a backpack hunt it's whatever so i guess that's my advice in the summary on the socks try a couple pairs and then have like two pairs of cooler socks two pairs of socks for or sorry two pairs of socks for warmer weather two pairs for cooler weather and then one warmer pair to sleep in that like i said you maybe you'll wear those out on the last day or something okay and then i have one more question on gear we talked about it before. Um, the shin guards you had mentioned uh, to prevent snake bites. Yeah, so we are going to be in an area that has rattlesnakes, and we're going to hunt an area that Tim and I hunted last year. And on the way out on our hike last year, we killed two rattlesnakes, so they're definitely in the area. That I've just bought some from. We got a store that's kind of like Academy called Shields. I don't know if those are in Florida or not, but basically, it's an outdoor store with some retail shopping too. You know, it's not like we're going to be walking through Indiana Jones type snake numbers in a pit full of snakes, but but we will run into them probably or occasionally. Luckily, so far, every snake encounter that I've had, or Shauna or Tim, it's been like we've almost stepped on them and they've coiled up and rattled, but they haven't struck. So that's good. You know, it's not like uh, a high probability of getting struck, but it is a probability. And going back to the Garmin and the satellite phone stuff, that would be maybe one of the things we'd have to be concerned about. So I know of a few different brands. They make straight up snake boots, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend those. Joe, I ordered a pair last year cause I was going to wear them for antelope hunting. I couldn't hike more than like a mile in them. They were super uncomfortable. I agree. Yeah. They make like the muck makes like a slip on one or whatever brand. And then there's the lace up ones. I bought the lace up ones thinking those would be more comfortable. And I actually bought Danner pronghorns, which was boots that I had before, but the snake boot was just real uncomfortable. So they make, the shin guards, which basically that's just a snake-proof piece of material that wraps around your legs and it's got some buckles on it. That's what I use for getting in and out. Actually, once we started hunting, I didn't even wear them during the day because when you're hunting, you're going real slow generally, so I was trying to be cautious for snakes. But when you're hiking in, I was just, we're just trying to cover ground, so we weren't, we weren't being as cautious. So good to have them for hiking in and out. Uh, and depending on your comfort level, you know, you can wear them during the day too. They're they don't have much weight. They just make your leg a little sweaty. I've heard good things. I, I don't have any, but I've heard good things about, uh, oh, I want to say it's called frog skin or no, turtle skin maybe. I don't know. There's some brand frog skin, turtle skin that's supposed to be real good too. And those are more like a up to the knee chap. Those actually cover your boot too. The, the shin guards I got don't cover your boot. So I guess maybe a snake could bite through your boot. And what I've read and what I've heard is that most of the snake bites, like a very overwhelming majority, are are below the knee. So that's why you want something like that. I don't think you need a full-on chap, you know, where it's up to your belt. I don't know. Maybe if you want them for Florida too. But for this hunt specifically, just probably something that protects your shin or your foot and your shin. So 
look into that. I think the ones I bought were like $40, but those turtle skin, turn, turtle armor, I can't remember what they're called right now. Those are pretty pricey because I did look into those. Those are like 150 200 bucks. So I guess it depends on how worried you are about or, you know, getting bit by a snake. We'll probably see one or two, but as far as actually getting bit, it's, I don't know, pretty low odds. But wouldn't be a bad idea to have them. Okay. I think my last and final question is we're five months out, almost exactly, five months out from the hunt. What is something I should work into my regular routine for hunting? I know we talked about calls. We talked about getting as proficient with my bow and arrow as I can and the physical fitness. It, it, my goal or my thought is working those three things as what I should be doing right now, five months out. Is that correct or am I missing something? No, man, 100%. So if you want to call, and I think you should, it's just, like I said, it's fun. Part of the experience, even, uh, it's not like you got to do all the calling every day, right? I can certainly pitch in, but it's, it's fun for the experience just to do some calling and some bugling. So in order, I would probably get the calls right away. That's definitely going to be the hardest thing to pick up if you haven't done it before. At least it was for me. Hopefully you'll pick it up faster than I did. But the single read, that's going to be pretty easy. I mean, you can make a decent cow call after messing around with that thing for a few hours and you can get pretty proficient in a week or two with that. But the mouth read and the bugle tube, that's a much more learned skill again at least it was for me so i would i would get that ordered like right away and hopefully be practicing on that in the next week or two the bow obviously i know you you shoot your bow pretty regular start stretching out your distances to the extent you can and i guess i didn't ask what are you shooting for a sight joe uh, i believe it is a, it's like a trophy ridge site that uh, adjusts out to 60 yards i believe it's a five pin and kind of has like a fiber optic light in it i'm not sure of the exact model is it five fixed pins or you got a slider what how's that work oh so it's fixed pin, yeah okay yep so five pins are do you know are you shooting like 20 30 40 50 60 yes that's exactly what i'm shooting okay so one thing I'd, i we didn't mention this either this is important i i prefer fixed pin sites a lot of people are shooting dials or sliders or multi-pin sliders these days i still like a fixed pin for hunting because i don't want to be screwing with anything when an animal's that close that's just me uh you know that's kind of like which broadhead should i shoot that's a whole nother topic maybe we can talk about that real quick too but gap shoot and what i mean by gap shoot is spend a lot of time shooting 45 and 55 yards where you got to gap your pins because that's not something that comes naturally uh at least not to me and that's not something you want to be figuring out shooting at an elk so maybe even your uh gap from 30 to 40 so 35 45 and 55 shoot those at the range as much or more than you're shooting your fixed pins you know sorry your fixed distance is 20 30 40 and also shoot if you're going to a range or in your yard or whatever where you can shoot odd distances too. shoot 57 shoot 43 regular get to know your bow as well as you can but splitting the pins you know like i said 35 45 55 get to know where you need to aim or where you need to gap them to get a bullseye with that if you're shooting a fixed pin sight. That is one of the drawbacks at longer ranges on a fixed pin. So I would I would highly recommend that. And then, sorry, you had one other question in there. What was that? So we talked about the, the, the calling. Oh, and then as far as physical fitness, I'm not training for a marathon, but I need to be in good enough shape that we can pack an elk out from, you know, deep in the woods if we need to i'm just curious about what i should be doing now five months out as far as physical fitness goes 
Yeah, I would say it's not paramount. I know you, and I know you're in pretty decent shape from staying active with PT in the military and stuff, so I'm not worried about you. What I would say is the last two, three months especially, I would do some sort of weight training for your, your legs. Like I said the lunges, the squats, that type of stuff, and uh, Stairmaster or Hill training if you can on the weekends or whatever. Maybe put a weighted pack on the last month or two. Basically just really focus on your legs and your cardio and ramp that up so you're kind of peaking coming into the hunt you know the last two months especially i'd I'd hit it real hard okay perfect and i'm gonna try to do the same i need the physical fitness more than you do (laughs) (laughs) well being thin doesn't always mean you're in shape right (laughs) no that's true a lot of skinny fat out there yeah i think that's uh that's all i mean i'm obviously gonna have a lot more questions um as time goes on the one other thing i we didn't talk about going back to shooting your bow and we can talk about this more as the summer goes on but for people that are listening the last month for sure and probably more like the last two months uh you're going to beat up a target and maybe that's an expense that most people wouldn't want or whatever but for the hundred dollars that you might spend or 80 bucks whatever you're going to spend on a broadhead target i would only shoot broadheads i'd buy an extra pack of whatever you're shooting you know three broadheads dedicate three arrows to practice and i would only shoot my actual setup if you're going to shoot lighted knocks and fixed blade broadheads Make sure you've got extras of both of those. Set up arrows just for practice and make sure your bow, your final sight in, your last minimum, your last month, but preferably your last two months. That's all you're shooting is your actual hunting setup because you want to be, one, make sure you don't have any tune issues. If you do, you want to catch that early on. That's why I say two months is even better. So if you've got to move your rest or you got to put a twist in your bus cables or whatever to get your broadheads flying right you want to do that sooner rather than later and for me it's like a confidence thing i want to make sure i'm 100 percent confident when i shoot that arrow at 50 yards you know 20 yards probably doesn't matter a whole lot you can have some variability there but if you start shooting 50 yards and you find out your broadhead's shooting eight inches left or high or whatever compared to your field point uh, you certainly don't want to do that when you're on a once in a lifetime elk hunt so Spend the last two months and shoot your exact hunting arrow with the broadhead. That's it. No more field points after, you know, two months out. Okay. And then I have a, I'm shooting a muzzy, I believe it's called a trocar, 100 grain, three blade, six blade, um, 100 grain, 125 grain, they're elk. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, I won't. There's a lot of literature out there, so we we don't got to dive super deep on this, but general consensus these days is a heavier arrow is better um the arrow itself a lot of people are putting like brass inserts or collar weights to up their f- front weight so you got a higher foc front of center you know your arrow's more balanced towards the front so my arrow setup and you can if you want to change change that Im- immediately so you're getting your bow sighted in for that but i shoot east and axis five millimeters i can't remember what the grains per inches it's nine something i think but i shoot a 50 grain brass insert and 125 grain head so i've got 175 grains up front a lot of people are going way heavier than that now the reason i don't is because i only want one arrow setup because i hunt out west and i antelope hunt stuff too where i'm taking longer shots if you get significantly heavier than that with my bow i get a pretty bad rainbow trajectory so i've found my total arrow weights right around 475 480 that's you know, broadhead, insert, arrow, veins, everything, knock. That's what works for me. You might want to weigh your arrow if you're 
low, like 375-ish, you might want to look at adding some inserts or a heavier broadhead or both. With that said, though, depending on how your bow's set up, and you know, talk to your archery shop about this, that might weaken your spine enough where you're going to need a whole new arrow with a stiffer spine. That might throw your bow tune off. So if you're going to change your arrow setup and go to a heavier arrow and or a heavier broadhead, do that immediately too, kind of like the calls, because you want to have time to tune all that stuff out if you're running into issues. If you decide for some reason later on, like August, you want to do this, I just wouldn't do it. I think that's too close to the hunt to be screwing around with stuff like that. So if you're looking at changing your arrow setup, do it early. And if you plan on mostly hunting in the east, you know, whitetail and hogs and stuff like that, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about maybe going a little heavier, but for this hunt specifically, don't get an arrow so heavy where you're gonna have a batter rainbow at fifty, sixty yards. You know what I mean? So I, I feel like the sweet spot's like for most guys is gonna be like four thirty to five hundred and probably leaning towards the higher end of that a little bit if your bow still shoots well. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, man. So uh I took some notes. Hopefully you took some notes. We'll probably do this one more time. Uh if you're up for it closer to the hunt maybe let's say mid-august we'll check in hopefully by then we'll have all the logistics of when you're going to fly out the dates all that stuff nailed down we'll talk about final prep and and all that stuff but i figured we're going to talk about this stuff anyways probably a lot of people that are planning their first elk hunt are going to have the same type of questions you did so why not record it and make a podcast so thanks for coming on joe appreciate it no thank you i appreciate it and thanks for uh mentoring me through this first hunt i'm excited i'm looking forward to it i'm really appreciative yeah man so we will uh we'll keep in touch offline but like i said maybe we'll have one more podcast in the future so in the meantime get those calls ordered if you got any questions you know hit me up offline but definitely grab a a single read cow call a couple different bugle reads like i said those are cheap seven eight nine bucks a piece grab like three of those that are popular with reviews or whatever and, and a tube and start ripping some bugles on your commute and, and it'll be here before you know it man so that that especially start doing that a couple of days a week because that that's an acquired skill and you're going to need some practice okay we'll do all right buddy well yeah we'll talk to you later all right thanks brother